Well, turn with me, please, this morning to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. As we continue through this wonderful, rich chapter um, in Matthew's gospel, we now come to two verses that I think are very profound. So today we're going to be looking at the words of Jesus himself as he continues to instruct his 12 apostles in Matthew chapter 10. He's instructing them on what they will be facing as they minister, as he sends them out to evangelize and to preach the gospel. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. These are the words of our Savior. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Hmm. Short to the point, but profound. Let's, let's pray. Father God, your word speaks to us boldly today. Your, your son, Jesus Christ, as he's instructing his 12 apostles, he's not mincing words here. He's not painting a picture of ministry and the Christian life that is romantic. He is being honest and he's being real. And so God, I pray this morning as we, we hear Jesus speak in these verses, God, I pray that you would speak to us in this moment, that you would cause us to understand our position before our Savior, that you would cause us to wake up and realize that we are living in a world that is not of our own, that is of you, that that as we are redeemed in the blood of Christ, we are no longer of this world, but the world will accuse us just like they accused our Savior. And likewise, Father, we will be like Him. And so, God, this morning I pray that You'd speak to us, that You would encourage us, that You would love us, that You would embolden us to proclaim the gospel, to preach boldly that our sins are forgiven through the blood of Your Son. Help us, Father, this morning to to love You. Help us to worship You. Speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. This is Independence Day, as Joe reminded us. I mean, I like calling it the 4th of July, and today is the 4th of July. It is the day. But of course, uh, as Americans, any time that we can expand a a national holiday to uh, four and five days off, we do that, and rightly we should, amen? We've got, if you've seen Interstate 40 coming through Cookville, there's a lot of traffic coming through here right now. Matter of fact, just yesterday or the day before, Ron and I were just flabbergasted at how much traffic there was at the intersection of uh, Jefferson and Interstate 40, there at uh, exit 287. That's a hot place. The people are out. They are enjoying the weekend. They're enjoying family. They're traveling. They're stopping in Cookville to buy whatever they want. It's an amazing thing. But what are we doing here? We, we are worshiping this weekend. Yes, we are celebrating our liberty, our freedom as Americans. We live in a country where we are blessed to be here in worship without persecution. Amen? 
We don't, we don't have to worry about the, the, the military showing up at our door here today to arrest us and haul us off. We don't face that. Yet the tradition of the church from the very beginning, even in, as Jesus is, is training and teaching his apostles here, the church has always faced danger. And Jesus is reminding his apostles in chapter 10. Remember, all of chapter 10 is Jesus calling his 12 apostles to a specific ministry of preaching the gospel. Primarily in chapter 10, he's saying, I'm sending you out to the villages and the cities. I'm sending you out to the lost sheep of Israel, but I want you to go and preach this gospel. Let me prepare you here. And now as we come to verses 24 and 25, Jesus continues to instruct his apostles, but he's also encouraging them in these words. He's encouraging them and, and teaching them in how they're to conduct this mission of theirs. You're going to go preach a message that I am giving you that the kingdom of heaven is now. Go and preach this gospel. And he sends them out. Now, the previous verses that we looked at last week, and actually all of chapter 10 for the last couple of weeks, it reminds us that this call to preach the gospel is fraught with danger. Amen? Anybody who's ever stood boldly for Christ understands what we're talking about. Whether you are persecuted from family and friends or co-workers, or if you try to preach anything truthfully of the gospel, now we live in a time in our Western society here in the United States where we will be vilified publicly and actually punished more so than we've ever faced before. It's, it's growing and building, isn't it? You can't even keep a job anymore if you want to be honest with the gospel. They will, they will condemn you. In other words, they're saying that you're preaching a false gospel because the world worships the gospel of secularism. We worship the gospel of we, we determine our own destinies. Our science and our enlightened reason is what we worship. And this gospel of Jesus Christ you're preaching is not what we want to hear. So we are actually condemned now for preaching the truth because the world has a different definition of what they think a truth or the truth might be. We're not allowed to speak the truth. Amen? We're not. But as, I, as I've as i been encouraging us for the last few weeks here, from the words of Jesus here in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel, why are we shocked? Why? Jesus prepared his disciples right here as he's sending them out. This is what you're going to face. Yet as American Christians, we've been actually, we have been blessed for, for a couple of hundred years now to have actually liberty and freedom. And we still have religious freedom. Do not throw that away. But do not be shocked and amazed that the world's going to stand up and call us names. Don't be amazed as the world stands up and pushes back against the truth of the gospel because that's what a fallen world does. And Jesus is saying this to his disciples. I'm sending you out on a mission that is not romantic and, and comfortable. I'm sending you out on a mission that is necessary to redeem a fallen world. And here's what it's going to be like. Amen? He tells them that this message that he's sending them out to preach is... This, this mission is fraught with danger. Remember, there's vicious wolves out there. There's shrewd serpents and snakes that attack the preaching of the gospel by attacking the messengers. 
And the words of Jesus here in these verses here, verses 24 through 25, they remind us that, that we as disciples of Christ, that we're all students of the teacher. Amen? We're all students of the master. Jesus is our teacher. He's our master. He's our Lord. And his disciples of Jesus Christ were also slaves to him. We're slaves to the truth of the gospel. We cannot do anything other than hold truth to this word. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he's saying it to his disciples. He's saying it to us now. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we're slaves to the truth. We're slaves to our Savior. We're bond servants. Amen? Yet despite what our woke cancel culture of today wants us to say, we stand firm. We preach the truth. Now, the woke cancel culture of the day, well, they'll say that any kind of submission is something that goes against our freedom. Yet, biblically, we're all, as Christians, as bondservants of Christ, we submit willingly, lovingly, obediently to the gospel message. And anyone who is a servant of Christ Yes, we're servants of Christ, we're slaves to Christ, but also let us remind ourselves, Jesus is not calling us to the level of slavery that, that we have seen in our sinful history of chattel slavery. The slavery that we are still wrestling with the ramifications of in our culture is what was called chattel slavery, much different than what we've seen in much of human history, yet it's still horrible. All of that type of slavery is horrible, and that's the problem when the world hears us talk about being bondservants of Christ and slaves to Christ, they miss the point. They think that if they submit to Christ, they're going to be treated like animals. And that's not what Jesus does. That's not we have, that's not who we as Christians are. We're not chattel slaves, and that's not what Jesus expects us to be. Yet the world will twist and distort the gospel when we speak this way. You see the problem? A servant of Christ is one who's a student of Christ. A, a student of Christ, a disciple, is one who, who learns the disciplines of the faith from the master of the faith. That's what we are doing here. That's, that's our position. That's what Jesus is explaining to us here. Jesus is the master and he's the teacher and we're his disciples. We're his students. We're the slaves to righteousness as we've been freed from this slavery of sin. Amen. All right, Baptists. That's a good amen point right there. Come on, Joe. Amen. Help me out. So now when we look here in verses 24 through 25, Jesus, is, he's, he's using some analogies here that's going to help us make a point about our connection to the evil world, how it's going to react to us, how we engage it, how we are to take courage when the attacks come. We're going to be compared. Jesus says that there are students to a teacher, there is a slave to a master, and then there are those who are, in, one word that I saw, one, one description was inmates of the household of the master. Jesus is the master of the house. He's the teacher. We're his students. Look here at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Now, this is the translation I'm preaching from, the ESV. And we're going to look here at some differences in the King James here in just a second, which I think are important. Jesus, in this verse, verse 24, he speaks of two different states of authority here, right? 
The first is the authority that a teacher has over a student. I know there are some adults here who are happy that they are no longer in school. Can y'all say amen? (laughs) But when we are students under the authority of a teacher, there is an expectation of the relationship. Amen? The teacher has authority, the student is learning. But what is the student learning? And this is what Jesus is trying to show us here. Now, the second thing is the authority of a lord or master over a servant or over a household. And in both of these analogies, I I want you to walk away with, uh, if nothing else, I want you to walk away with this one understanding. This is the main point here that Jesus is trying to get us to see. In both of these analogies of the teacher to the student and, and the master to the servant, in both analogies, Jesus is making the point of becoming like the authority over you. We all are structured and molded and influenced by some authority that is over us, whether we recognize it, admit it or not. It is the reality of the order of the world. We all have different levels of authority and submission in all relationships, whether it be a teacher to a student, a master to a slave, an employer to an employee, Even in the church, leadership of the church to the congregation of the church, not like I am in control of you, but there is this relationship of God placing some people in different levels of responsibility within the church for the purpose of shaping and molding and influencing and guiding as God directs us through Scripture, God is the Master. His Son, Jesus Christ, is our Lord. We learn from Him, and then even there, He has different orders within the church of how that is taught. Amen? So what the point is here is that the influence that one in authority has over another cannot be ignored. If you are a parent in this room, You have a responsibility in your authority as that parent over the children that God has gifted you with to shape them, to inspire them, to mold them. Amen? These apostles would be shaped into the likeness of Jesus himself as they preach the gospel. This is what Jesus is saying here in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. What he's saying here to these apostles are, I am your teacher, I am your Lord and master, and likewise you will be shaped into my likeness as you preach this gospel. That's an amazing experience. You see that? That's what he's pointing out here. So those who honor Jesus also honor God as well. And he pronounces here that these these apostles, these disciples, these students of his, they honor him as they preach like him. That's the point here. As they conduct miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus grants these apostles the, uh, the, the ability to perform miracles and healings just like he does as representatives of him as he, they go and they preach the gospel. They are 
the at the level of apostle and they have this gift that Jesus has given them. Not that they use this power for themselves, but it is something that Jesus is saying, I want you to reflect me in all things. And as I am preaching the gospel and as I am raising the dead and as I am casting out demons and I am healing the sick, I want you to be able to do the same as signs and wonders that point to the truth of the gospel, period. So just like Jesus, these disciples, they're going to be blessed when Jesus was blessed, but they're going to be blessed also as they are persecuted and criticized because of their allegiance to Christ. Just because Jesus is persecuted doesn't mean that the apostles are somehow going to avoid that outcome. If they're going to be like Christ, they're going to be like Christ in all aspects of Christ, the good and the bad. Not that Jesus is bad, but, uh, you know, Jesus experiences. Jesus experienced all things for our sakes. He experienced the good of life. He experienced the persecution and suffering to the point of death on the cross. And if we're going to be like Christ, how can we ever imagine that we're going to avoid even that pain and suffering like Jesus did? We're actually going to suffer worse, Jesus tells us. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22 Jesus reminds us that, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Remember us looking at that, verse 22, a couple of weeks ago? You will suffer as I suffer, and they will hate you for my name's sake. And the one who endures through this hatred and this suffering and this persecution, you will come out on the other end, blessed and redeemed and saved. And so Jesus... He faced opposition from the very beginning. As the true Davidic king, the one prophesied in the old Davidic covenant, the one that would come and redeem the world, he was destined to suffer. Remember when Jesus was born, his mother Mary and his father Joseph, they grabbed him and they fled to Egypt to preserve his life because of the suffering and the persecution that was coming. Matthew chapter 2. You know, even as he grows older, and we're going to look at this here in a couple of weeks, Jesus is rejected in his own hometown in Matthew chapter 13. They thought he was crazy. They wanted to stone him. Jesus and his own family, they even doubted his sanity. We, we don't see this in Matthew's gospel. We actually see it in Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 8, the account that as Jesus was teaching... His family comes to where he was and they want him to stop because he is crazy. You're embarrassing the family, Jesus. How many people in this room have been told that by your family? You're embarrassing us. Quit talking like that, Christian. Jesus faced the same thing. Who are we to think that we will avoid what Jesus endured? Likewise here, Jesus is reminding him, reminding these apostles, they're going to face the same thing. Now, let's look here at verses 24 and 25. I want to bring this out with, with I want to be real cautious here because I don't want us to look at what I'm getting ready to point out here and come along with the wrong outcome and the wrong conclusion. But I think it was very interesting when I was looking at these two verses, I did compare some modern translations with the King James. And here's one time that I will publicly confess. I love, listen, I love the King James. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't avoid the King James because I hate the King James. I just have always studied out of the ESV. This is where all my notes are. 
The King James is beautiful. And I really think in these verses, the King James gets the translation better than some of the modern translations. And help me, let me go with you here and help you understand what I see here. There's a play on words here in verses 24 through 25 where uh, Matthew speaks of the master. He's recounting what Jesus is saying and Jesus talking about the master. In, in the English Standard Version that I'm using, also if you have the New American Standard Version and even the NIV Version uses master in both verses. But the King James, I think, uses a, as a different distinction here where they will use the word Lord in relation to the, the slave to the Lord. A servant, the Greek word here, the doulos, in verse 24, was an indentured servant, but let's not try to sugarcoat it. This was a slave to a lord, the kurios. The word kurios in the Greek often, just about everywhere else you see it in the New Testament, is translated lord. There's a big difference here between I mean, a lord and a master are similar, but I think the two words have a unique place in our language because the word lord implies someone who is lord over a household, a household of servants, a household of family, lord over a a, a group with responsibility. A lord has responsibility for lives. A lord has responsibility for loving and for caring. And a good servant or slave who has a good lord has a good life. In ancient times especially. But when we look here at verse 25, the word translated master of the house, that's a good translation because that's not actually speaking about a Lord here. The word here, master of the house, speaks of the head of a household as someone who has complete control of the household. Subtly different than the master, but I don't want to go too far because in verse 25, we're also speaking about Jesus here as the master of the house. The word here in verse 25 is much different than the word that we translate Lord in verse 24. Both are important, but why, why are we pointing this out? Look here in verse 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master or Lord. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to his Lord. If they have been, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? When we look here in verse 24, Jesus is laying this out. You are my students. You are my disciples and you are not above the teacher. That's me. Just like if you were a servant, a slave, you're not above the Lord of the house. You're not above the master. Well, look here in verse 25. Now he, he, the rubber meets the road here. Verse 25. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. How many of us in this room who are redeemed, who are in the, in the blood of Christ, that we call upon the name of our Lord, we say that we are Christians? How many of us in this room? Jesus is making a big point here in verse 25. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. That's a great way to understand our definition of Christian. We are like 
our Lord. We are like our teacher. We got some teachers in this room who teach in the public schools. When you're teaching the students, we even have some parents who are homeschooling their children. What is your approach to teaching and learning? Is it just that you're giving them facts to consume and to regurgitate out, to show that they've memorized stuff? No, the purpose of a teacher, the function of a teacher is to shape the student to be like them. Now that is a great way to approach education, isn't it? Think about that. And Jesus is making a a very obvious point here. If you are my disciples, if you are my servants, it is commonly understood that you will become like me. Wow. Now that'll shake you to your boots, won't it? Because if we approach our relationship to Jesus Christ with the idea that I am going to define the relationship with my Lord, He has given me the freedom to think how I want about him. He has given me the freedom to come to him any way I want. That is a lie. Jesus calls us to redemption. He calls us to repentance and forgiveness of our sin so that we can be molded and shaped to be like him. If we could make ourselves like Christ on our own, Why do we need a teacher to teach us what it's like? There's a big, deep point to ponder. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I'm sending you out, my 12, as a servant does, or as a master does his servants, and as a teacher does his students. You are going out. You are going to be like me. But also... You see, that, that sounds very romantic, right? When we talk about missions and evangelism, doesn't that sound romantic? We get to go to these exotic places all around the world and be like Christ. And there's a lot to that that is applauded and necessary and, nest, and, and it's needed. But how many people go to preach the gospel with the mindset that Jesus is teaching here? You are going as my disciples, as my students, as My servants, you are to be like me. That's impossible to do on our own. And Jesus will shape us and make us and mold us into his likeness, into his image. It begins with cleansing us from our sin. And then it's a lifetime of learning and growing and shape. It's called sanctification, folks. You know, you ever heard that terminology? Sanctification is not something that happens once at an altar. It's a lifetime of learning and growing to be more and more holy like Christ. That's what sanctified means, to be more like Christ. It's a, it's a, we're not going to be in. First of all, we're not Christ. Let's make that clear. I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. Anyone who walks around the streets claiming to be Jesus in 2021 probably does need to go to a loony bin. Amen? But we are shaped like him throughout our lifetime. And how does that happen? It goes by preaching the gospel. Not not from a pulpit necessarily, but preaching it in our life. Preaching it in our words. Preaching it in how we live, how we treat others, how we serve others. We reflect the image of Christ in who we are. And that's romantic. Hallelujah. Yet, 
Y'all knew there was a but coming, didn't you? Look here at verse 25. Jesus is not sugarcoating anything. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If we are disciples of Jesus Christ, if we are slaves to him, we are going to be like him. But if the enemies of the gospel proclaim that Jesus Christ is the devil himself, which they do, they're going to say that you're the same. Are you ready to be called a devil for my name's sake? That's the point here of the latter half of verse 25. If Jesus is considered a Beelzebul, then his enemies connected his lordship as teacher and master as more of a manipulative control. Jesus' enemies accused him of being like a demon or a devil over his subjects. You're just another one of those manipulative cult preachers, Jesus. That was what they called him. And Jesus is saying, you're going to go out as my disciples, as my apostles. You're going to preach the gospel, my 12, and they're going to call you the same thing they've called me. They're going to say that I'm just a Beelzebul and you're just being manipulated by the devil. Are you ready for that accusation, Christian? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, many in Jesus' ministry, they compared Jesus to Beelzebul. Likewise, the apostles would be guilty of the same because of their guilt of association with Jesus. They're going to be condemned as Beelzebuls or as slaves to the devil as they preach the gospel. Anybody ever been accused of that? You're just being manipulated by that teacher-preacher. He or she is just maligning you. Why are you following that lie? Anybody ever challenged or anybody ever said that to you? They said this to Jesus and Jesus said, they're going to say this to you as my disciples. Now, let's understand who Beelzebul was real quickly. The background of Beelzebul is a slur in the Hebrew tradition that goes all the way back to for, uh, 2 Kings chapter 1 when Elijah condemns King Ahaziah who sought this god of the Ekron. This god of Ekron was Beelzebul. And this King Ahaziah sought counsel from the god of Ekron, Beelzebul, instead of the true god of Israel. And in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah condemns him for it. And he does not repent. And so Elijah says, God will take your life tonight. You remember? Go back to 2 Kings chapter 1. This is where this comes from. Because Elijah condemns King Ahaziah for seeking this God of flies. Beelzebul was understood as the God of flies. The ancient tradition here was this. Whenever someone died, what happens to a dead body before too long? Flies come swarming. And when the flies came swarming, the ancients thought, well, that's the sign of Beelzebub's presence. He was called the Lord of the flies. That's where the idea comes from. And so this was actually a clear reference to Satan worship. In the Jewish tradition, past, present, and even now, in future, it, it's be, to call someone a Beelzebul, you're, you're accusing them of Satan worship is what you're doing. So whenever you see that in Scripture, that's what's being referred to. Now, Jesus was never called Beelzebul directly by his critics, but he was often accused of being controlled by Beelzebul. He was, he was uh, accused of being under the control of Satan. 
He was in league with Satan, they would say. Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus is casting out demons, that's the charge. He's casting out demons under the power of Beelzebul because this is a clear sign. If he can cast out demons, he must be in league with the devil. And that's the challenge. So these apostles, as they're granted the same power to cast out demons, here's what Jesus is saying here in verse 25. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign you? That's the message here. So, how does this passage relate to us? We're in 21st century America, right? Do we walk around casting out demons every day? Anybody cast out a demon this week? Why not? No. See, there, there are many in the church who would say, if you're not casting out demons, you're not a real Christian. That's not what Scripture says. But we live in the 21st century. Our, our modern mindset, we, we're, not, we're not in tune with those things. We're not going to be going around casting out demons, Right? So when we look at this passage, we say, well, that's good for Jesus. That's good for his apostles. What does this mean for me? Think about this. Are members of the church today truly disciples and servants of Christ? Are we truly students of Jesus? Are we truly slaves to our Lord? Or are members of the church today merely controlled by Beelzebul and they're blind to it? Ponder this. If Beelzebul was called the god of the flies, then the stench of Satan's control was obvious. How much have we seen of that in Christianity? Are we genuine disciples and servants of our Lord? In other words, is this accusation that Jesus is bringing out here in verse 25, in this context in the Scriptures, it was directed to Jesus and his apostles, But can this charge also be leveled against us and it be true? We are blinded to the secular ways of the world, thinking that we are in alignment with Christ, yet we are so distorted in our thinking that we've made a religion of our own. We've harmonized the ideas of the secular world with the church, and we're not really disciples of Christ at all. We're not really slaves to our master as we should be. That's a pondering, that's a thought I want you to ponder. Are we as Christians genuinely in the service of Jesus Christ, who is the son of the almighty God? That's a good pondering point from this text. If so, then we're called and we're also sent out to preach the gospel. And we're called to send out, we were were called and sent out to preach the gospel, not under Comfortable conditions, but we are sent out to preach the gospel under difficult conditions. That's the reality of the gospel. If our lives as Christians are so easy that no one ever accuses us of being servants of the devil, I wonder if we're genuinely living living out the gospel. If we are never accused of being in alignment with the devil because we preach the gospel, I wonder if we're truly preaching the gospel. That's something to ponder. Because Jesus makes it clear, if you are truly my servants, if you're truly my students, they will attack you the same way they've attacked me. They will take the truth of the gospel that you are preaching and they will twist it and distort it and turn it around on you and accuse you of being in alignment with Satan when truly you're in alignment with me. That's what Jesus is saying. 
So in other words, for many Christians to avoid the persecution, to avoid the accusation, we water down the gospel to tickle the ears of the world. Amen? We don't want to offend. We don't want them to run away. We don't want them to think that we're mean. So we're going to water down the truth of the gospel and not really be like Jesus anyway. We're going to be more like Beelzebub and then, then they'll like us. Amen? How many... Can we, That's a good place for a Baptist amen, right? The truth of the gospel is this. If we are truly in alignment with Christ, if we are truly servants of Him, if we are truly His students, we are going to be more and more like Jesus. And that doesn't, I mean, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Yes, if we are more and more like Jesus, we're going to be more loving. We're going to be more compassionate. We're going to be servants to others like Jesus was. But at the same time, we're also going to receive pushback from the world just like Jesus did to the point of death if necessary. Yet it's that second part of the, of the sword that I was telling you about that we try to avoid. We want the nice part of following Jesus, but we want to walk away from the difficult persecution from the world that comes from being like Jesus. Can we do both? Yes. We can be like Jesus in the good parts. Is there a blessing to following Christ? Are there blessings, folks? I hope so. <laughs> I think the scriptures make it clear. Yes, we will be cleansed of our sin. We will be more like Christ. We will be in the presence of the Lord. Our lives will be better. But when our lives are better, that also means we're going to be facing a lot more persecution in the process too. (laughs) That's what Jesus is saying here. There are many in our church here who understand the attacks that come from family members or friends or coworkers who are more like Beelzebub than they are like Christ. I've talked to many of you over the last couple of months. As we've been going through this text, some of you have come to me privately and you've said, this is what I'm dealing with at work. Here's what I'm dealing with with my family. Listen, let me encourage you, verses 24 and 25 are for you. You're going to be attacked when you live the gospel honestly, correctly, and the way Jesus is saying here, you are my servants, you are my disciples, you are becoming like me, you're learning from me, and here's part of the learning curve, you're going to be attacked. But let me encourage you, they're going to come against us as if we're false prophets and hypocrites when we're preaching the truth. We stand in amazement at their accusations. If you stand in amazement at their accusations and it just boggles your mind. Now, I'm, I'm saying these are, these are accusations from unsaved people. I'm not talking about a member of the church, a trusted friend in Christ who comes to you like a loving brother or sister and says, I love you and here's what I see in your life. That's not an accusation. That's discipleship. But when someone who's outside of the church, who's outside of the faith, attacks you, Why are you, I mean, my encouragement to you is you're going to stand in amazement. Where's this coming from? (laughs) I'm just being like Jesus. Why are they attacking me? Jesus' words here is this. This is part of the learning curve. If you're going to be, I'm molding you and shaping you to be like me, and this is part of the journey. So if, if, if you are attacked by people outside of the faith, And you are shocked, and it really does shock you when it comes. 
Take courage from these words of Jesus here. So that's my point. And I want to say, continue to serve the only master and continue to serve the only great teacher that there ever was and ever is, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen? Don't bow. Stand firm. But stand like Jesus. He was firm, yet he was also compassionate in his firmness. In other words, don't act like Beelzebul. Act like Jesus. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. And in our current time in our Western society, in our American churches here, in our, Amer- in our American culture, we as Christians are standing in shock at how quickly things are changing. And Father, I pray that these words of your Son in Matthew 10, verses 24 and 25, God, I pray that they would, that they would be words that you would use to encourage us, but also to disciple us. Persecution is here. And it's coming even more and more, but it's nothing new in the history of your church. And so God, I pray that you would cause us to stand firm and be like Christ even when they call us devils. But I also ask you, Lord, that you would challenge us to be Christ and not be the devil. We, in our, in our sinful flesh, Father, we could easily be devils thinking that we're Christians. So God, I pray that you would cause us to be more like your son as your divine plan intends. Cause us to love our Savior so that we can love others as He does. Give us strength, Father, I pray, to preach the gospel correctly, to preach it boldly and honestly, but also to withstand the attacks that come. We depend on You in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.